I doubt if I have to convince you that we live in a world of what have you done for me lately? Right? The, the best author is only as good as her latest book. The, the Grammy Award winning singer is only as good as his latest album. The CEO is only going to stay in place if he brings a profit to the shareholders, and not just yearly, but quarterly. The world's best, best athletes are continually looking over their shoulder because there is someone coming who is faster and stronger and better. And we live in a world in which even when your favorite team wins the championship, almost immediately we're asking, so when are they going to win the next one? But this idea of of a world in which we think, what have you done for me lately, isn't a 21st century invention. This is not even something that started just a few decades ago. This is something you can trace back at least to the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. Now you remember the context of Exodus as the book opens, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And the people cry out to God and God said, puts his hand on Moses and he says, I want you to go free my people. And of course, Moses and God have this conversation about that. And eventually Moses goes and, and he becomes God's means of rescuing his people from Egyptian slavery. And God indeed brings them out from the hand of Pharaoh and he parts the Red Sea and they cross, they cross on dry land. And he says to them all the while that they are in the process of leaving Egypt and moving on. That he has this promised land reserved for them. This place that's described as a place of milk and honey. And it's synonymous with the most amazing place you could ever imagine. This is what I have in store for you. The people end up in the wilderness and God is preparing to bring them into that land. And he says, you're going to need some instructions. You need to understand what the expectations are. And so he has Moses come up on the mountain. And for 40 days, Moses is on the mountain talking with God. And God is giving him the commands and the laws of how how his people should live. And after a while, the, the people still down in the desert get antsy. And they start wondering about what's happened to Moses. And they turn to Aaron and say, you got to do something here. And Aaron says, all right, give me all your gold. And he pours it into a mold and creates a golden calf. You know, I think one of the most outlandishly humorous lines in all of Scripture is when Moses confronts Aaron. And he says, what, what, are you, what were you thinking? And Aaron says, hey, I just took the gold, I threw it in the pot, out came this calf. I don't know what happened. You know, I don't know. You know, even Moses had to smile when he heard that. And, and, you know, the people worship this calf and there's probably a lot of of, uh, hedonistic revelry going on at the same time. And as you might well imagine, God is angry. Moses isn't real happy either. And he comes down from the mountain and he smashes the tablets And then you come to chapter 33. And chapter 33 opens and God says to Moses, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to keep my word. 
I am going to bring my people into this promised land. I'm going to send angels ahead of them to drive out the people who are there. And they are going to get established. But here's the thing. I'm not going with you. Now that was something for God to say. Because the whole book of Exodus is built around the idea of God dwelling with his people. From the very beginning, God has said to Moses, I'm going to rescue my people from slavery because I want to dwell with them. Chapter 29 says that the Lord says, this is how people will know that you are, that I'm the Lord and you're my people because I'm going to dwell among you. Everything in this book is leading up to this idea that God dwells with his people. Now, we take that for granted because we have read the scriptures and we know the heart of God. But this is a very unusual idea. Among the other ancient peoples, there is no concept of a God who is personal in the same way God is personal. For the other ancient peoples, their images of their gods, their their gods are, are manipulative and capricious. They are angry and hateful. And the only reason that human beings exist, according to their creation stories, are because the gods were forced to create them. Or because they figured out that maybe these human beings could do something for us. There is no sense of dwelling among them, of having any kind of a healthy relationship with them, such as God is wanting with the Israelites. It, it reminds me of, of the story, the book, uh, the movie, The Help. I'm sure many of you have read the book or you've seen the movie. And it's a story about these white socialite women in the the deep south in the 50s, early 60s, who hire black women from the other side of the tracks to come and work in their homes. And and these socialite women have these black women in their homes, but not to have a relationship with them. And it's not even that they could do something for these women The only reason those women are in their home is because those women are willing to be paid a pittance to do things that the white socialite women don't want to do. And that's something of the mindset in the ancient Near Eastern cultures of their gods. That these gods don't want to do anything good for us. And the only way they're going to do anything good for us is if we can trick them or manipulate them or somehow convince them to do what they don't want to do. And Yahweh comes along and says, I want to be with you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. I want us to have the healthiest relationship together, the closest, tightest relationship together anyone could ever have. And now God says, maybe we should change plans. God tells Moses that the reason he's not going with them is because the Israelites are just stubborn, stiff-necked. He says to Moses, I want you to go tell those people you are stiff-necked people. Boy, wouldn't that have been a great sermon to preach and to listen to. I thought about starting today by looking at all of you and saying, you are a stiff-necked people. But then you would have said, what? Uh, that, that word stiff-necked comes from the agricultural world. And it relates to oxen wearing a yoke. And the, the, 
the oxen, the farmer puts the yoke on the oxen so that they will plow where he wants them to plow. If you don't put the, the yoke on, the oxen are just going to amble all over the place. And so he puts the oxen, puts the oxen in the yoke and, and plows the field. And after the field is plowed, then he can plant the crop and later harvest the crop. And then eventually feed his family and ironically, the oxen. And so the oxen put, put, they put this yoke on the oxen, but they don't want the yoke on them. It's heavy. It's constraining. And, and they want to do their own thing. And so they fight the yoke. And some of them may fight enough and pull and push and even get violent enough with the yoke that perhaps one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to break the yoke or break their neck. And God says to the Israelites, that's what you are. Yikes. In fact, it's the same word that's used to describe the situation that the Israelites find themselves when they're in Egypt. That they are, there we go, don't want to crash. That, that they are enslaved under the yoke of slavery. And it's the word that God uses to describe Pharaoh and Pharaoh's attitude toward God. He is stiff-necked. God says, do this, and Pharaoh looks at him and says, no. And God says to Israel, you know, you're like Pharaoh. You know, we understand stiff-neckedness. We get that. You know, how many times do, does God say, here's, here's what I want you to do. And we say, mm, I think I'd rather do this. And we do this. How many times do we turn to God with, in, in distrust and say, why are you doing this to me? Why won't you let me have what I want? Why won't you let me do what I want? How many times do I read the the Old Testament and I read the stories of the Israelites, like chapter 32 of Exodus, and I think, man, how stupid can these people be? After all the things God has done for them, and this is what they do, and almost instantaneously, I can just about feel God's tap on my shoulder saying, really, seriously, you're going to talk about their stupidity? Are you kidding me? Come on. We get that, right? And Moses tells us that God, God is angry with them. In fact, he says, I'm not going with you because I'm afraid if I go with you, I'm going to kill you. That kind of bothers us, right? I mean, it offends our sensibilities that God would say that. We, we want a, a nicer, gentler image of God than that. It doesn't seem to bother the writers of scripture because they give us all kinds of times when God says those type of things. But it bothers us. And I think it's because our view of God is skewed. Our view of God is that sort of a doting grandfather who just gives us what we want. He, he, just, he just keeps he's giving us whatever we want and, you know, never makes trouble, ne- never says anything to us. You know, if, if we want to do that, we can do it. If we want to do that, we can do it, you know. Whatever makes you happy. But God says, I got bigger plans for you than that. You have to remember the Israelites, the Israelites are God's witness in the world. God says, I have brought you out of slavery and I'm establishing you in this land so that the rest of the world will know what it looks like to be related to me. 
And then they will want what you have and will be drawn to me. And they too will become my people. And they will experience life as I created them to experience it. But when you go off the rails and you go your own way and you you act in this stiff-necked way and you reject me, you send a clear message to the rest of the world that I can't be trusted. That I'm just like all the other gods. So why would they follow me? And that image of me is going to be passed along to your children. And they're going to see me that way. And your grandchildren, they're going to see me that way. And the rest of the world's going to see me that way. No wonder God is angry. I mean, shouldn't we be angry at injustice? Shouldn't we be angry when people who, who should know about God are prevented from knowing about God? Shouldn't we be angry when we see things happening in the world where people are being hurt and needy people are being ignored? Things like human trafficking ought to make us angry. It's not loving to sit back and say, hey, not my problem. It ought to motivate us. We ought to have some passion about it. And God is angry. And the people respond by throwing off their ornaments, which I think is probably a reflection back to the golden calf, because that's how it was made. And they're like, let's distance ourselves from that now. And because it's a sign of celebration, and this is no time to celebrate. This is a time to mourn and repent. And then Moses says to God, Lord, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. If you don't go with us to the promised land, then it's not really the promised land. If you don't go, we don't want to go. And I am fascinated by those words of Moses. Because I know how often I am more interested in the promises of God and the gifts of God then I am the presence of God. I know how often I am satisfied when God gives me what I want, whether I sense his presence or am open to his presence or not. And Moses declares to God, if your presence isn't with us, then you can keep your gifts. You can keep your promise. Because more than anything, we want you. That's a struggle for us. Because we live in a world, we have a mindset in our culture and our society and even in the church that what's the quickest, easiest way we can get what we want? You know, we're all about being pragmatic. Just just get me where I want to go. That's all that matters. And we do that with so much in life, including our relationships. You know, how many people are, are, think of, are, are afraid to get involved in relationships and don't want to get involved in relationships? Why? It's too much work. And relationships are work. Good relationships take time and energy and sacrifice and conversation and work. That's, what, that's how good relationships are developed. And so many people simply say, I don't want to mess with that. 
just get me where I want to go. I, I see this often developing as I watch culture. And unfortunately, I don't see it a whole lot here. But I see it as I watch culture in the way that people view weddings. You know that, that I've seen this. I'll make a confession to you. Every so often I watch some of the wedding shows that are on television. Don't tell anybody I said that. But, uh, you know, and I watch them because it gives you a real insight into how a lot of culture thinks. And what I've discovered is that for all these pe- a lot of these people, the wedding is more important than the marriage. It's all about the wedding. You know, the money and the time and the energy that is invested in the wedding. And it's as though the marriage is just sort of an afterthought. I've totally turned the thing on its head. And we see this when, when we are more interested in just getting to the end. When God is interested in the journey that gets us to the end. It's not just about where I end up. It's about where I am right now. And God is saying to us, it's not just where I'm going to take you, but where am I in your life today? How are you trusting me today? Where's our relationship today? And too often, I think we believe the heresy that salvation is primarily about a moment in time instead of a lifetime of relationship with God. It isn't just, I said this and now it's over. It's about the whole relationship for all of our lives. We understand, God, I'd rather have your gifts. And if your presence comes along, that's awesome. But it's really about the gifts. It's about the promise. Someone was telling me recently that when their children were young... One of the children's grandmothers used to uh, clean out her purse at night of all the chains that she had accumulated that day. And she had a jar for each one of the grandchildren and she put the chains in the jars. And then whenever the grandchildren came to visit, she would give them the change. Well, as you might well imagine, what happened is every time the grandchildren came to visit, they pulled up to the house, jumped out of the car and ran to the house where grandma, to the door where grandma's standing there. And they run right past grandma because they're going for the loot. And what was started as a really nice, kind gesture ended up, you know, revealing some things about the children that we understand. And I suspect even when the parents said, now, look, at least you got to say hi to grandma and give her a little bit of a hug. The whole time they're looking past grandma to the jar. And certainly their thoughts are on the jar. And I suspect that there are times where that's our mindset about God. Lord, your presence is great, but what about your gifts? What about your promises? See, we have bought into the culture's idea, and you see it in the church, that that people believe that what really gets attention is what's flashy and big and magnificent. And certainly God does those things, and we give thanks to him for that. But if that's our focus, we're going to miss the presence. If our focus is on the presence, ultimately the gifts and the promises get fulfilled. But God is saying it's not just about gifts. It's not just about thinking how can you manipulate me into giving you what I want. I want relationship with you. I want to be with you. And it's such a passion for us to want God's presence 
that we are willing to say, if we don't have your presence, then we don't want the gifts. We want the presence that much. Verse 16, Moses says, Lord, that's the only way the rest of the world's going to know that we're your people. The only way the world's going to know that we're your people is if you're with us. And so we as a community of faith will only be defined as God's people if our passion is for the presence of God. And what does that look like? What does it look like to have have a passion for the presence of God? I think you can boil it down to having a desire to be filled with the Spirit. Living our lives with such openness to God that what we want more than anything is for the Spirit to live in us and to dwell in us. And we know the Spirit is living in us when the things of the Spirit come out of us. So that when we are being pushed to the limit, we still choose patience. When the whole world says, hoard what you can because you don't know how long you're going to be able to keep it. We choose generosity. Sacrificial generosity. When we'd rather not spend time hanging around with people who are needy and and, and people that aren't like us. But we choose compassion and involvement anyway. When we want to lash out and still choose gentleness. When we want people to embrace our opinions, but instead speak God's truth. We're beginning to understand what it means to be passionate about the presence of God. It's about choosing servanthood. So much so that that we still act like a servant when people treat us like one. As we embark on this new year, we are faced with a decision. What's our passion going to be? Where's our focus going to be directed are we more about the gifts and the promises of God or about the presence of God is the passion of our heart to be filled with the spirit so much so that the spirit comes out of us and people begin to look at us and say those people have something different and I want to know more about that You remember Jesus says to his disciples in the last night before going to the cross, he says, the world's going to know you're my disciples. Not if you move mountains, not if you heal the sick, not if you display great power as awesome as that is. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. If in the push and the shove 
and the difficulties of life together, you look like Christ. People will stand up and take notice. So what's our passion? I heard the story that happened probably 20 or so years ago. I don't know the exact date, but it happened actually here in our church. Before we lived here. There was, a, there was a, a little boy in the church, I think probably four or five years old, who was having a birthday. And he was really excited about this birthday, and especially all of the gifts that he was going to receive. He had a list of them, and he's communicating them, and he's, you know, he's just talking about this all the time. And I think his birthday was on Monday, and on Sunday night, the church had a big potluck dinner. And so everybody is back in the community room and getting settled around the tables and all the families with their food. And Pastor Mike stands up to give the the prayer for the meal. And he begins his prayer by saying, Lord, thank you for your presence here. And little boy's head pops up and he said, presents? They have presents here? They brought me presents? This is awesome. I'm pretty sure the whole table had a difficult time containing themselves as the prayer was completed. And you know, when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that is so me, and I suspect it's you. Because we're continually faced with the passion, the focus, the decision of our lives. Is it on the presence that God may give us? Or is it on God's presence with us? Choice has huge implications. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your power to us and for all of your blessings in our lives. And we are so grateful. We can't begin to thank you enough. Father, We want to be passionate about your presence. We want to be passionate about dwelling with you and you dwelling with us. That individually and corporately, we are a place where people see you first. Let this be our passion as it was with Moses. And let it lead us and guide us and establish us in this year ahead. Amen.